It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It would seem there is joy unbounded all over the place this morning. People are hugging each other in the street, high-fiving all over the place as we finally see a way out of this coronavirus. Oh, hang on a minute. Uh, Maybe they're just celebrating being able to go back to the pub. That's, of course, only if you're in Tier 3, not Tier 2. Or perhaps it's the other way around. Or is it Tier 1? Or is it going to be Tier 3.5? There is a vaccine, of course. Uh, In large parts of the country, uh, there are now where people are languishing in Tier 3, ostensibly part of this third lockdown. Last night in Parliament, 56 Tory backbenchers decided to vote against the measures, dealing the first of many blows to Boris Johnson's Prime Ministership. We'll be talking to one of them, Matt Vickers, coming up very shortly. And regardless of how relieved he may be this morning at the news about this vaccine, he's clearly on very shaky ground with his own backbenchers and with those people who voted for him in December. Now, I know this is probably not the right time to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Could this be the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson? He's got a vaccine. Can he now retire and say, well, look what I did. 0344 499 1000. One thing worth celebrating, though, is the plain fact that stands out above all else. And that is the reason Britain has become the first country in the world. And that's right. The first country in the world to approve the Pfizer vaccine is because we left the European Union. So how does that feel? All of those naysayers that talked about the European Medicine Agency leaving London, causing all kinds of health problems, causing all manner uh, of terrible situations for people who needed medicine in this country. Well, if you're living in the European Union, you're not getting the vaccine before we are. So there you go. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on in the show, we'll be talking to Neil Oliver, uh, archaeologist, historian, TV presenter, of course. We'll find out what he makes of the current state of things. Also coming up later, we're joined by Robert Colville, director of the Centre for Policy Studies. He's got some words of advice for the Tories and how they have to win the war on woke. Plus, we'll talk to Dame Esther Ranson, another victory for the Independent Republic. Families are now going to be able to visit their elderly relatives in care homes thanks to another outbreak of common sense going on all over the place but also find out who made plank of the week in our special recording yesterday high uh, above the river thames you'll listen to me mike graham on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio 
Now, what you heard just before the show started there was a press conference which is currently going on with Dr. June Rain, Head of Regulatory uh, Medicines and Healthcare Products at the regulatory agency, the MHRA. That is the organisation that has, in fact, approved the use of this Pfizer vaccine, uh, which apparently has to be stored at some ridiculously low temperature, which you can't get your fridge to go to. It's something like minus 74. We were talking about this earlier. How high do you have to turn the fridge up to get to minus 74? And then we started wondering about the reason for turning the fridge up in the first place. But we'll get back to the science of all of that uh, later on. Let's go right now, without further ado, to Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South, one of the 59 rebels uh, from last night uh, who voted against the government's measures uh, on the lockdown, which is, to some extent, lockdown number three. Matt, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hello, Matt. Are you there? Good morning, Mike. I'm there. I'm there. I've done that that thing that everybody does on every Zoom call and forgets to unmute themselves. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it, how often that happens? Mind you, it looks as if you've got a better Zoom connection than Boris Johnson has from Downing Street. So welcome. Well, we'll see if it holds out. We'll yeah. see if it holds out. Now, you're in tier three up there in Stockton, so I don't want to we be are, too I don't want to be too sort of happy about the fact that down here in London, you know, the pubs are going to be open today. Restaurants are going to be open as well. Um, and, and tier two is certainly better than what we were looking at yesterday. But let me get your reaction, first of all, on the, on the vaccine story, because obviously Obviously, that breaking news this morning has kind of dominated the last couple of hours of our uh, of our radio. Well, it's incredible, isn't it? And we've led the pack with the first one out of their stalls. Uh, we'll be rolling them out in no time. I can't wait. I think for all those people who've been trapped in their homes, isolating for months and months, for all those business people who thought this is never going to end, actually... There's light at the end of the tunnel and we're almost there. Well, that's right. And uh, what I would say to Julie Hartley Brewer was that surely what we need to see now uh, is a kind of roadmap being constructed by the government uh, by which they can tell us precisely what the timings of everything will be because we're told we're going to get 10 million of these vaccines before the end of this year. Uh, presumably, we can start looking at lifting all sorts of restrictions come January. I, th- I think we want to make sure we've got the things. Lo- I mean, it's a huge logistic challenge, isn't it, rolling these things out across the country? I know that... My local authority are looking at where their sites are, where they're going to be jabbing everybody. Uh, it's a huge challenge still. You know, it's there. It's on the horizon. We're going to get at it. Uh, but I think we've got a steady away. Um, and yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Tell us about last night, because we heard some very interesting stories about the prime minister standing, uh, you know, in the House of Commons and outside of the lobby, talking to people and asking people to vote for his uh, uh, for his coronavirus uh, lockdown rules. And, you know, a very unusual scene where quite a lot of uh, your fellow Tories decided to vote against them. Quite a lot of senior people as well. For me, it was, it's a really tough decision. You know, you, you're you're going against your uh, party line. But actually, I'd spent last week talking to residents, talking to local businesses, um, talking to pubs, restaurants, family businesses that people have, you know, they've gone out there, took the gamble, set up business. They get up, crack a dawn every morning. They stay late to make it a success. Um they provide young people with their first job. You know, like these are people and I need to be on their side. Uh, and and that was where, you know, that's what made me decide the way I did. I looked at what was an offer for the hospitality industry. Would it work out for them? Could they actually, they're not just treading water. They can't open their doors. Yeah. It's peak season. It's Christmas. The places are meant to be rammed. They're meant to make so much money this month that they can pay for next month in January and February when the slump comes. Um, that's the normal way of business. They need this. They may not last that much longer. Um, and so I had to make that decision based on what was going on back home, yes. based on those hardworking people who do their business every day. And I think that's a that's the right thing to do, Matt, as well, because I was astonished when I found out, uh, as many people did, that Sir Keir Starmer uh, was going to order all of his MPs basically to abstain because... 
Here's a guy who's supposed to represent people. He's supposed to have MPs that represent constituents uh, in all parts of the country. And yet he's effectively saying to those constituents, don't worry about uh, what you think. We'll tell you what we think. And basically, we're, we're, we're going to just abrogate our responsibility um, and not bother voting. He's kind of got form on it, though, hasn't he? Because mm. uh, <laughs> whenever it comes out, whether it's the rule of six, oh, we're, we're, we're supporting them, but we're not voting for them. Uh, he talked about the 10pm curfew, uh, didn't vote on it. He's... Health Secretary, Shadow Health Secretary goes out at three o'clock and says, you know, it's ridiculous the thought of a circuit break a lockdown. Then he comes out and announces it at five o'clock. He's all over the place. Yeah. Uh, he, all he does is try to score political points. He's not real opposition. He's not delivering the scrutiny that this country needs. And instead, it's left to it's left to people on my side to start questioning the government. Yeah, um, I know, which is quite extraordinary. Now, last night as well, we were told anything bigger than about 30 to 35 Tory rebellions uh, would be quite a serious problem for the Prime Minister. Um, instead, it was a lot bigger than that. Um, I'm saying, uh, and I put out a tweet last night, which a lot of people, I was quite uh, not, not unsurprised to see, um, agreed with me that this could be the beginning uh, of a sort of fault line in Boris Johnson's leadership and in his prime ministership indeed um, uh, because there's so many people on his own side who don't really seem to have faith in what he's doing I don't see that actually at all uh, you're very sound and I often agree with most of what you say but on this occasion Listen, I actually you can, you're allowed to disagree with me Matt it's not a problem <laughs> but at the beginning of this pandemic, if people thought that the government was going to respond as it has, most people have been incredibly impressed. Local businesses, very impressed. Uh, the furlough came out. We've protected so many jobs. Uh, the responsiveness has been unreal. Um, the government's moved at a pace. Governments are big, slow, cumbersome machines that tend not to do what we want them to do as quickly as we want them to do it. Throughout this pandemic, actually, they've been rocking, rolling, responding at lightning speed to get stuff out there to support people. I think on this, this decision, um, I think it was... There's probably people going out for different reasons about freedom, about all these sort of angles. Actually, my belief is that we needed restrictions of some sort, shape or another. I think we got it wrong on hospitality or I think the, the line is wrong on hospitality. And that's the, the one point that meant I couldn't quite go with it, uh, whether it be tier three where we're just shutting everything down or whether it be tier two where we had the, you know, you can't mix households. So you could only go to the pub if you're going with your wife. Yeah, but this, um, is, but this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think, I, th I, think I, I, I think, Matt, you would have said that I would have agreed with you if you were talking about the first lockdown when most, most people were, you know, reasonably unsure of what this virus was going to do, what, what it was capable of, how dangerous it might be. But I don't think people are coming and travelling with the government now because I'll tell you what, I spoke to uh, a hotel owner uh, in Kenilworth yesterday. He's being offered £3,000 a month in terms of compensation for not being allowed to open uh, because he's in tier three. He needs to make 20,000 a week to break even. So you're yeah. talking about a guy who's going to be short by approximately 77,000 quid in one month. That is exactly why I walked through that lobby last night. It's for businesses like that in the hospitality sector. Do you know what has gone out with the, in the wash though? The people haven't quite, the, the media's, we're, we're focusing on the bits that are, uh, that are tougher. Actually, I was out with some independent retailers on Saturday. They're opening the doors today. Uh, they'll be catching up on Christmas. It's going to work out for them, hopefully. Uh, in fact, you and I need to encourage everybody to go and get down their high streets and shop local this year. Uh, the gyms are open. I've been talking a lot to gyms, the, the salons, the barbers, the hairdressers. Uh, there's some positive news today for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, the hospitality deal... Didn't well, there is. Well, there is. Uh, but I mean, a lot of people are asking me this question, Matt. Why is the government, uh, and I don't mean just the, 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 the government in Westminster, but also in Scotland, uh, in Wales, and they all seem to be anti-drinking. What's all that about? Um, 
Well, I mean, that's a, that's a perspective. Uh, I think the, the argument would be that the duty on beer, that would be what the government would say, wouldn't it? They'd say the duty on beer has, has you know, been frozen and reduced in recent years. Uh, and it would yeah, be but you can't, it doesn't matter what the duty on beer is if you can't buy one, does it? That's true. That's very true. <laughs> I mean, you know, you cannot have, you cannot go into a pub in Wales after uh, six o'clock on Friday uh, and, and buy an, an alcoholic drink. Same in Scotland, yeah. um, same in, in many parts of the uh, of, of England as well, where tier three means you can't open a pub. You know, I don't understand. And people are tweeting me saying, well, how can I go to a gym, but not to a pub? Yeah, I, I mean, agree. And well, I think actually what the, the big concern for me when you talk to these businesses is the fact we made them jump through hoops. We give them guidelines. We give them restrictions. We told them you've got to do this. You've got to be socially distanced. You've got to set up. I mean, some of the old pubs are going. You have to set up the, the QR code. These people have never fiddled with such a thing in their life. Apparently, the pub trade spent, I think it's $450 million across the piece mm. to become COVID compliant. They've jumped through the hoops. And then we're still not letting them open. I think it's really grim. Uh, I think there has to be some level of restriction. I'm not entirely convinced that this is the way for the hospitality sector. Um yeah, tough times ahead. So what is the next move for all of you guys who voted against the government? Are they going to try and sweet talk you? Are they going to try and help out the, the constituencies, constituencies that you represent? Is there a chance that on the 16th of December, uh, those tier three areas will be moved into tier two? Well, I'll find out later today, probably, how, how they're going to deal with me. Um, but I think, actually, when you, look, when you look at it, I'm hopeful that we'll get out on the 16th. Uh, the numbers are moving in the right direction in my part of the world, slowly, but they're moving in the right direction. Um, I think, actually, when you look at it, we talked about lockdowns and circuit breakers. It's right that we have a localised response. Um, it's right that, actually, those restrictions are where they need to be and the people who live in... Yeah, but the local, yeah, but the localised response was working fine until suddenly Boris Johnson did what he said he didn't want to do, which was a national lockdown. And then we yep. have a national lockdown and areas that were in tier one have suddenly found themselves in tier three after four weeks of lockdown. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, the problem is people are tired of it, aren't they, as well? People have been at it for such a long time. We Very started tired. out in February. We thought the thing would be over in a couple of months. Everybody made the sacrifices. We got on with it. You know, we rolled our sleeves up, tolerated. I mean, and it's huge sacrifice. It's huge sacrifice for elderly people who've been trapped indoors. They haven't seen their relatives for ages. Yeah. People in care homes. Uh, you know, I mean, with the impact on youngsters' education was unbelievable, wasn't it, in the, in the short term? Yeah. Uh, and it, hopefully, we've seen the vaccine. Hopefully, the doors will be open soon and the world will return to normal. Yeah, and I mean, as far as that is concerned, let's go back to my, my plan. Because what I'd like you to do, Matt, uh, is to take my plan with you to Downing Street and to tell them that this is what we want them to do. And it is to provide a kind of um, a map, a way of... Because one of the things that people complain about a lot is the uncertainty. I mean, even now, there are people who have got businesses that they don't know whether they can open before Christmas. They don't know whether they can order stock. They don't know whether they need to hire people to come in and work if they're going to be open for extra hours. So they need a bit of certainty in their lives. So they need to know, really... Um, if there is um, a sort of calendar that can be rolled out in front of them where, where, where the government can say, look, by the 15th of January, we'll have carried out this many vaccines. By the 30th of January, we'll have carried out this many vaccines. And now we can say with some alacrity uh, that you can return to work in your office. I think, well, I think people would. I would love a timetable. I'm sure the government would love a timetable. I think there's probably that element of, of the virus is not is not a. It's not steadfast. The numbers are up, they're down, they're here, they're there. Yeah, but if you've got a vaccine, it doesn't matter, does it? That, I suppose. Does it? I mean, if you've got a vaccine, it doesn't matter, does it, what the, what the virus is doing? Well, if you've got the vaccine and you've got it out there logistically so that everybody can get at it, I suppose, then you're you're in a much better place. But we aren't quite there yet. The, the, you know, light's at the end of the tunnel. We've still got a little way to go in the tunnel before this thing is rolled out. 
Uh, and then we'll be having the debate about who wants it and who doesn't. I've already had that going on on, on social media. I've already had a few emails from people who tell me it's a terrible thing and they're never taking it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that, that will be their, their choice, I presume, because uh, not everybody... I, I presume also, if you've had the disease, if you've had the virus, you don't need to take it, do you? I don't, that's not confirmed, though, is it, at the moment? I think there was, it wasn't the debate that you can catch it a second time now. I think it's sort of a... Well, there's been, I think there's been about five people in the entire world who've had it more than once. So, I mean, yeah. it's a pretty low risk, I would suggest. Yeah. I, I think I'd rather have something stuck in the arm and ensure I wasn't going to get it again, though, in the grand scheme of things. OK, well, that's entirely your decision as well. I mean, everybody gets to make their own decisions on this. But the point is, is that the government also has a huge responsibility, um, which they need to start recognising to the businesses that you've been talking about and to the, re and to the people that you've been representing up there in, in Stockton South. Entirely. I mean, when you look at the hospitality sector and you look at these people, you know, this isn't money. They've put their lives, you know, their life's energies into to creating these businesses, into making this successful restaurant, to making this successful pub. They're the place that youngsters get their first job. Uh, and it's a massive thing. And we need those jobs when we get to the other end of this pandemic. You know, it's lives and livelihoods uh, yes. and a bit of living as well on the side. Yeah, absolutely right. And how important is it that uh, that Britain is the first country in the world to get the vaccine approved? Because obviously, as I said at the top of the show, one of the great kind of bonuses of not being in the European Union is this. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, it's it's incredible that we're at the front of the queue. It's incredible that we've got our pre-order. I remember getting pre-orders as a kid for DVDs. And but we're, we're there. We've got our allotment. It's going to happen. Uh, really positive stuff. Um, and I think... Actually, it's, I don't think it was ever in any doubt. I'm sure we were always going to be front of the pack. Um, well, it didn't seem like that a few weeks back when Boris Johnson said in the House of Commons, I'm not even sure there ever will be a vaccine. Well, I was confident if there was one, we'd be at the front of the queue and we'd get at it first. But that's another bit of, of government machinery. The MHRA, you see these processes take months and months and months sat in someone's office. Actually, there's been a response here. They've pulled their finger out, got it together in, in a tenth of the time they might normally. Uh, it probably means what they're doing the rest of the time, but actually, uh, it's a very really positive thing. Yeah. Matt, thanks very much indeed. Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South. Uh, he voted against the government last night uh, alongside several dozen other Tory MPs and a few Labour MPs as well, led by Jeremy Corbyn, believe it or not, uh, a man who now hates uh, Keir Starmer so much that he'll do anything uh, to mess him up. So when Keir Starmer tells everyone to abstain from a particular vote, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to uh, actually vote against the government. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And it's time to say a very good morning to Mr. Neil Oliver up in Scotland. Neil, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mr. Mike Graham. How, how are you? How the devil are you today? Um, yeah, well, it's uh, just working away, working away, chipping away, Groundhog Day number million. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, we're seeing um, all sorts of restrictions um, being lifted, other restrictions being put down. Up in Scotland, of course, it's a slightly different uh, kettle of fish, isn't it? Because while in London, we've got some reason to sort of celebrate because the pubs have reopened, restaurants have reopened, we're in tier two. Um, we can actually go out. In fact, I'm planning to go out after the show uh, and have a drink. What's going on, Mike? Well, I noticed from your piece in the in the Sunday Times this weekend that uh, that you were surprised to run into somebody that you knew in the street because it's so uh, rare to do that. Yeah, it's absolutely you you, you settle into a, a sort of a, a rut, I think, or I, or I have, and I mean, I, I never will happily use this expression the new normal, but I realised that um, it was a, it was such a treat to to see someone that. In, in in the past life, I would have bumped into on an almost daily basis. Right. I mean, a couple of people that happened, it struck me because I met, bumped into two people in quick succession 
uh, one of, the young son of a friend, and it was just a treat to see him. This, you know, this happy lad came you know, trotting towards me on the way back from school or something. I was going to the shops, right. um, big beaming smile, and said hello. And I said hello to him, and you know, told him to give my best to his dad, which is such a, a normal everyday encounter. But it felt like a it felt like a truffle yeah. found in the middle of a forest. Of it. And then, not fifty yards later, I bumped into another friend and neighbour who I realised I hadn't seen since I don't know when. Yeah. And, and it was like it was like you know it was like um, Stanley bumping into Livingston in the in, in the jungles. Right. I, if under other circumstances, I would have you know <laughs> taken him in my arms. <laughs> I'm so pleased yes. to see. Him. I know. And I but this is the thing. I thought, this is crazy. Yeah. You know, just, just seeing familiar faces has now become like, you know, the best present. Yes, exactly. And I guess, I mean, we've been a bit spoiled, I think, in London, uh, in parts of it anyway, because I think over the course of this last four weeks, which has been technically, you know, a, a proper lockdown, I mean, life hasn't really changed that much from before that happened, you know, apart from the fact that the, you couldn't actually physically go into a pub, uh, but there were places selling takeaway beer. So being British, of course, we were finding reasons to stand around in the street and having and having a drink together, all very socially distanced and all of that. Um, but it's But it's hard to imagine what it's like where you are because you guys haven't really had any kind of ability to socialise for weeks and weeks and weeks, have you? Well, yeah, I lose track, but yes, uh, and I just, I realise what it is, I've never, I wouldn't previously have categorised myself as a particularly gregarious person, Mm. because I'm not, you know, I never want parties or or any of that kind of, you know, enforced jollity, but I I realise that as a a member of the species, I just, I do miss uh, my fellow uh, human beings. Yes. Our great one of our great pleasures as, as a family of, of five, we would just go out for lunch, you know, routinely. We don't go out in the evening because our, you know our kids are still young. Yeah. Um, but we go out for lunch and just being in one of the local eateries, uh, you know, with everyone behaving normally mm-hmm. with a bit of hub and chat, I, I miss that so profoundly. And with all the masking, I realise how much I miss reading people's faces. Yeah. I find it really distressing that when I'm buying stuff at a checkout and we're both covered up and I'm I'm trying to transmit warmth, you know, to the to the person yeah. in the brief exchange that you have and not being able to do that or having to find alternative ways to sort of express simple human uh, engagement, mm. I, I find deeply distressing and I, and I worry about what that must be doing to... I mean, I had 50-odd years before that I can draw upon as a kind of a reservoir. But for young children, uh, you know, growing up in this in this environment, uh, uh, we do wonder, I do wonder what, what it's doing to their sense of what it is to be a normal functioning yeah. human being. Well, I occasionally uh, sort of catch um, a glimpse of, 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 of somebody's young child in a supermarket or something like that. And so quite often the kids are not wearing a mask, thankfully. But they've always got this kind of slightly bewildered look on their face as they look around. And I, I hate the mask wearing. You know, I really do. I have to, you know, I do it in a, in a supermarket because that's what they want you to do. So I'll do it. But I don't wear it in the street. But I also worry when I walk around the street now that there's so many people wearing masks and not really communicating with one another. Because even... Like you say, if you're just walking past people, there's always a sort of a glint of recognition or something, or you you know you smile at something that you've both seen. None of that's happening at the moment. No, I mean we are we are social animals. <laughs> I, I would previously have characterised myself as a bit of a misanthrope, <laughs> but I realise I realise I'm not, and and it's just simple things like making eye contact with a stranger, you know, someone pa- passing you in the street, and wanting to, uh, you know, you often feel, especially when it's 
two people alone on an empty street, I always feel an instinctive need to to send out sort of reassuring signals mm. that I'm just a, that I'm just a normal, happy-go-lucky person going about my business, and I'm trying to transmit. I hope you have a nice day too. Yeah. And sometimes it's just with a smile or a, or, or whatever. Uh, and we are as human beings. It, it, it sounds. I think it, it can sound silly almost uh, to, to worry about those details. But I think you know the devil is in the details. And it is those microscopic uh, gestures that we make to one another that we've learned from childhood that bond, uh, you know, society together. And my my desperation to to return to normal uh, is overwhelming. Mm. I mean, obviously, the news of the vaccine it has to be in the main. It's good. It's great that you know there's there's uh, scientific endeavour doing what it's supposed to what it's supposed to do and what we know it can do. And I mean, I'm a because of the kind of work I've done in the past, traveling to some, you know, well, places off the beaten track mm. all over Africa and in the Far East. I mean, I'm a petri dish of vaccines. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm Japanese encephalitis, and I've had the jabs that give you a best chance if you get bitten by a rabid dog or, uh, you know, the hepatitis this, hepatitis that, cholera, yeah. yellow fever, horrendous things. And I've just stuck my arm out and, and got these things really without a thought, but absolutely voluntary. You know, I, I do that because I'm, I'm prepared to take all sorts of risks. Yeah. Goodness me, I mean, never mind vaccines. I've eaten things in foreign places that would make a billy goat sick. You know, all, <laughs> well, all this sorts is it. Of I mean, I remember being, I remember being, in, being in New York once on a, on a trip to see my family, and they had an outbreak of West Nile fever, right, in uh, in the Bronx. And they were flying helicopters over the Bronx and just dropping stuff on it. You know, it was this kind of powder that was supposed to kind of suppress the disease. And I thought, you know, where the oh. hell have I ended up here? Yeah, I, I think strangely enough, when you start, I haven't really even thought about it till right this moment with you, but I think it, part of why I was uh, so uh, uh, irate about the nature of lockdown and, the, and things being made compulsory mm. on top of us that should have been uh, our voluntary response, you know, I, I've realised that it, it, all, it all fits because I'm, I'm, pre- I'm quite happy to take what I consider to be reasonable risks you know, and, mm. and down through the years, I've wanted to go to, you know, remote parts of Africa for this or that adventure and this or that opportunity. So the, the risk is you're, you're taking things that, you know, you might have side effects of. And, and I've just happily gone along with it. And I've eaten I've eaten strange foods and things cooked for me under all sorts of, frankly, unhygienic circumstances and, and never given it a second thought. And, it, and it's because as a grown-up, I, I, I just weigh up situations as I go. And that's why I bridle against people I don't know, and in many cases didn't vote for, telling me what I must do, mm. what I must not do, because I have had a lifetime of making those decisions for myself. Right. Absolutely right. And I mean, uh, all, I suppose not joking aside, I mean, you, you would half expect Nicola Sturgeon to pop up at midday today and say, oh, we've got a vaccine too, and we're going to roll it out sooner than the one that's coming out of London. You know, but obviously that probably won't happen. But the, the the but what I'd like to see now is is some kind of rollout of of a of a roadmap as I'm calling it, so that we can have a plan to move away from all of these restrictions because of the vaccine. Yes, normal is what I crave more than anything. Yeah, and the thought of life without returning to normal I find completely unbearable. Mm. Uh, and it, we have to have. I think we need to get back. I want to get back to uh, where where we as people, as free people, as free citizens of a free state, are trusted to make our own decisions. 
and you know god bless whoever's come up with these vaccines uh and you know we'll we'll see how that how that rolls out but that must be a that must be a, a choice of free people and I, you know I, I would i would expect that people who hadn't been i think once you bring in this idea that it, it, it's not necessarily compulsory, but where there's this sleight of hand at play where people are being told, oh, you might not be able to get on an aeroplane or you mm. might not be able to go to the pub or the cinema. That that very, that very sleight of hand, I think, is more likely to increase people's suspicion yeah. where there wouldn't necessarily be a suspicion there. Right. We know kids have had the MMR jab and all the rest of it, but even if we hadn't, there was never any possibility that they wouldn't have been allowed to go to school. Mm. And I would suggest that measles is, is an altogether, is a horse of a different colour. And you wouldn't, but and yet kids that hadn't had MMR, they were still welcomed into school. Yeah. And these things are are voluntary. And once you start bringing in through the back door the, the, the idea that people would be second class citizens if they hadn't complied, then you're undermining the nature of the population. Yeah. And, and we are we are free people, you know, who, who are capable of making educated decisions about ourselves, about our families, uh, and that's all part of getting back to normal. And, and anything like compelling coercive compulsory behavior rules and regulations they undermine that our our this our society that has functioned so well for so long is predicated upon the the fact that we trust each other as free thinking individuals to do the right thing and if you start tinkering and not and it's not tinkering to go for a fundamental change where rather than things being voluntary they become compulsory then you can bring the whole edifice down around your ears Mm. And that also that also takes us back to what we've talked about in the past, Neil, as well, of how many politicians appear to rather relish uh, the power that they currently have or that they've currently taken for themselves, whereby they basically tell you uh, what you can do, when you can do it, who you can do it with, how long you can do it for. And I think they might have trouble relinquishing that. Um, so we'll have to be quite vigilant about it. That's my, my number one concern, because... Let's say let's say that uh, we're we're moving into territory where there could be more new viruses appearing. Mm. I, I don't know how that works. Uh, you know, we'll get, maybe maybe when you've got this many people living together in certain parts of the world, population densities, maybe maybe we're going to be uh, confronted with with viruses as we go. So my my sneaking suspicion is that we're now in a we're now on uh, season one, episode one of a, of the of the pandemic box set. Right. You know, we've only just we've only just uh, seen the the first the first few episodes, maybe, uh, of how this is of how this is going to play out. Yeah. Uh, and it's for me, you know, the, the 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 mistakes that have been made are the are the ones where the where governments have taken unto themselves powers that they never ought to have had, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And that that must that must be something that we don't see in season two. <laughs> yes, and also, and also, since they, and since they have made such a thing about the vaccine up to now, now that the vaccine would appear to be imminently available, then they will have to follow through with all the things that they then said they could do. For example, you know, will we now uh, be able to ask them to reopen the cities, basically, and to reopen offices and to get people back to work and to get people back, as you say, to normal. Uh, for the part of that that I'm particularly preoccupied with, I, I suppose, are the, are the self-employed. Mm. I'm, I'm, I've, apart from a few years, I've always been self-employed, one way or or another. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a self-employed person now. Uh, and also, more broadly speaking, the the private sector. 
and I read all these terrifying headlines and in, in, in newspapers about you know you know Glasgow will never recover and London will never recover and you know who am I to judge whether there's any foundation of fact in any of that? But I would I would wonder who in the future would risk uh, opening their own little business. You know, if this is to be the road, if this is to be the, the roadmap, that at any given time in the future a government would just shut down your business yeah. or, or stop your ability to earn a living, who in their right minds would open a, a little garage to do repairs or a, or a hairdresser's or a restaurant? Mm. Why would you do that uh, if you had if you had internalised the idea that at any given moment a government could just shut you down for a year yeah. and you lose everything? And so, how do you how do you reinvigorate a private sector? that has looming over it the sort of Damocles mm. of the experience that we've all had in 2020. It, surely anyone you would think in there would just be clamouring after a public sector job because the experience has been, well, if you get one of them, if you get one of those jobs, then you'll be, you'll be, you'll be furloughed you, you'll be, uh, you'll, or you'll continue to work and you'll be paid and you'll, you'll be looked after. Where do you get, how do you reinvigorate the private sector that, that a functioning economy needs, otherwise you don't have the luxury of a public sector. Mm. Well, how, do we, how, do, how do we reinstill in people the faith in that sort of uh, you know entrepreneurial group that want to go out and take a chance and start a business? How how to reinstill faith for them that it would be worth their while? Well, also in 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 terms of things like travel, in terms of things, I mean, like 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 what you do. I mean, you you would travel presumably most years quite a lot. For, for purposes of work or for purposes of making TV documentaries or for whatever it is you're doing for holidays. You know, the travel business for me, um, which is one of the biggest industries that we've got here. I mean, there are huge parts of Scotland that only have tourism as, as any kind of, you know, um, e economy at all. And they, I mean, I don't know what you're doing if you've got a hotel somewhere up in, I don't know, Torridon, um, you know, which is one of my favourite parts of the world. When, when are you ever going to see anybody again? Ah, who's going to? It, it puts doubt into into everyone's minds, both potential or existing owners of businesses. You can think, are we going to keep doing this? You know, if if anybody has survived this harrowing uh, that has happened in the last however many months it's been, and if they've still got a business, you know, are they going to keep that business going when they when they realise that as far as we we seem to be being told, what's happened this year could happen forever into the future. Here's an, here's here's COVID twenty. Mm shut everything down, send everybody home and know if you're private sector or self-employed, you're not getting help. Yeah. So how, how on earth do these businesses sustain themselves? And then when it comes to travel, I've already, yes, I, I spend, I mean, in some years I've spent, you know, eight months, nine months out of the country yeah. in, in one place or another. But now you've got the complication of thinking, I could be somewhere and uh, and get locked down. Yeah. Because this is not just Britain; this is everywhere. I'm thinking I could be in I could be in New Zealand, or I could be in you know, or I could be in Japan, and get locked down, uh, not able to move. Mm. So that that complication enters my life. Are people taking a two week holiday? You know what happens about you're you know risking spending that kind of money on a on a holiday abroad? Yeah. Uh, when you don't know what circumstances might intervene to to, to turn that holiday into a nightmare or a financial disaster. Yeah. Well, that was my that was my problem in the summer. You know, my family went to Portugal. I didn't go with them because at the time Portugal was under uh, quarantine. So if you came back, you'd have to quarantine for two weeks, which I didn't want to do. Um, then while they were there, they lifted the quarantine 
And so when they came back, they were fine. And they put it back on again. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. You can't, you can't make any plans. And I think that's why we need from the government some kind of idea as to what they're going to be doing uh, and when they're going to be doing it. Because that's the one thing we've never known. We've kind of hurtled from, from one sort of bad place to another um, without really any warning. Yeah, I mean, there, there are. It's the private sector that that, that generates the, the the profit, you know, that, that allows the the luxuries of things like the NHS and 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 the public sector and so on, and that the the private sector and and people who would have been contemplating being part of that in the future, there has to be a massive reassurance, because as it stands, it's not a sector that appears to be worth getting into when at any moment a government can take it away from you mm. in every way that means anything. They can stop customers coming to you. They can close your doors for you. They can interrupt your supply chains and all the rest of it. And being in the private sector and being self-employed is risky enough. Why would anybody contemplate it under those, under those uh, circumstances of just perpetual forever uncertainty? Mm. I don't, I don't see how you reinvigorate that whole sector upon which so much of the economy absolutely depends. No, I, I totally agree. And I was talking to, to my friend Donald McLeod the other day about the garage, you know, which you'll know well in Glasgow is, is the sort of the font of all student activity in, in Scotland, really. Um, and he was hopeful that at some point he might be able to. He hasn't been able to open the place since March as it was shut down. And, and it's only recently, relatively recently, they got some kind of compensation for that. But, you know, nightclubs, for example, you know, and I, as I said to him, um, you know, if there is going to be a grand opening, I'm going to have to come up and, and join in because I've spent a lot of time in the garage over the years. And if you haven't caught any horrible diseases in there already, uh, you'd probably be fine. Yeah, who's going to open a nightclub now? <laughs> I know. Who, who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna step into that terrain? Uh, of, of opening a, a business that's, you know, it comes with all its own all its own risks and challenges. Why would you do it when at a moment's notice you could be told, well, you know, it's February now, we might let you reopen next Easter. Yeah, I know. Well, this <laughs> is the thing. Absolute madness. Listen, Neil, we're out of time, I'm afraid, but thank you very much indeed. We didn't get to talk about your big piece about being British, but we'll do that next time. Neil Oliver, uh, archaeologist, TV presenter up in Scotland, wondering when the new normal will become the old normal uh, or just normal, back to normal uh, with a vaccine. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I'm delighted to say that uh, we've got uh, a big guest coming up now, Robert Colville, Director of the Centre for Policy Studies, also Sunday Times columnist. We haven't had him on for a while. Robert, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome back. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I enjoyed your column at the weekend about the culture wars, which we hear about more and more and more. I've got my own little uh, story. I was walking through um, absentmindedly, really, but quite close to the uh, the building here, uh, the back of Guy's Hospital, um, and the fact that uh, you know there's that little sort of quadrangle that seems to be a, a, attached to King's College London. And as I was walking through, I suddenly noticed that there was this kind of hoarding that I hadn't noticed before. I then realised that it wasn't actually a hoarding, but it was a, 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 a big piece of wood covering up the statue of Thomas Guy, who, of course, is the guy who founded uh, Guy's Hospital and St Thomas's Hospital. And on it was uh, stapled a note in which it said that they'd covered it up uh, while they were under doing, uh, undergoing a review uh, of whether or not the statue... Uh, was relevant um, and they were in discussions with Sadiq Khan's, um, you know, sort of statue committee uh, to see whether they would need to remove it, which seems an extraordinary thing. And I'd never really noticed it before. And I don't know how much of that is actually going on. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a there, there is a I think there's a there's a push and pull factor on this stuff. I think there's you know, there are at one level, you know, students who are kind of Googling all of the um, all of the people who were involved in their colleges and finding out that, you know, that as, as over the hundreds of years of British history, some people did some fairly nasty things or, you know, benefited from uh, from family fortunes that were built on fairly nasty things, which then they, they gave to charity. And then there's also a separate thing where, you know, quite a lot of administrators are sort of panicking and trying to get ahead of um, of any perceived criticism and sort of um, trying to sort of purge their purge their historical records of, um, or, you know, or sort of remove from sight mm. anyone who might potentially cause offence. Yes. And unfortunately, that's kind of, I think, in my, in this case anyway, it's kind of skewed the wrong way at the moment. Like when you get the Natural History Museum talking about how uh, Charles Darwin, you know, might have to be reviewed as well. Um, you know, as, as I said at the time when that story came out, you know, it's pretty bad news for the origin of the species and it's pretty bad news for the Galapagos Islands and all the things that he discovered around the world. And it, and your piece is more about what the Tories need to do really to kind of not make this thing ratchet out of control. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, I think there's a general recognition that things have got, got a bit out of hand. Um, and a lot, I mean, you, you, you mentioned universities. Um, there was a report like just last week from Universities UK 
which effectively, which, who's basically his opening line, his opening statement was, everyone is racist. Mm. Every single university in this country is built on racism. It's built on structural discrimination. You know, that's just, and that's, you know, that's the kind of line that everything, like everything is tainted because, you know, our entire societies are, you know, have, are built on this hierarchy of discrimination, imperialism, slavery, racism, and therefore nothing that's kind of built on that foundation can be can be legit, legitimate, which is a really sort of corrosive and destabilizing uh, idea. Um, the issue that the government has, I think, and what I talked about in the column is, is effectively how, how you go about this, because there are a lot of people I think you know you're probably you're probably one of them, um, and many of your listeners are who care who really care about this and who feel that Western civilization is under attack. That you know the the, the Enlightenment values, that the, the stuff that has made us the most rich and free and prosperous and healthy and successful society that the world has ever seen, and you know you know, not just us but you know, all around you know other Western societies. That that stuff is is fundamentally under attack. The problem is. You know, most people don't think like that. Most people just want to go to Tesco and they just want to live their lives. And it, there's this kind of balance between fighting the, the fighting the sort of the, the mad stuff that's coming out, but but also just looking like you're looking like you're crossing the road to picking fights. When people are like, "Well, shouldn't you be focused on the coronavirus? Shouldn't you be focused on Brexit? Shouldn't you be focused on making making the schools better? You know, filling in the potholes." Mm. So I, I think there's this balance that they're trying to to strike of um, you know of, of you know of doing sort of good and interesting things on this without looking like it's there as a kind of all-consuming passion for them yeah no of course and i think that's that's the problem as well because those people who uh would have a go at people like me for for example singing land of hope and glory at the end of one of my uh, recordings of plank of the week um was was actually kind of an ironic thing to do i knew it would wind a lot of people up so that's why i did it you know it's not because i demand the right to sing land of hope and glory on every street corner whenever i go anywhere but if you do pick people up on this kind of stuff and you know i i, I was particularly i wasn't outraged by it but i was particularly perturbed um, by some European composer coming into the Albert Hall and declaring that they were going to change the words of Jerusalem or change uh, Land of Hope and Glory because they didn't think it should be sung anymore. You know, and if you complain about it, you're made out to be some kind of crazed gammon skinned idiot, you know, which is not the case either. So, you know, it's almost like the two sides will never meet in the middle. But basically, I mean, what there are areas you, you mentioned, like you mentioned the, the problems, like the, you know, the the Rule Britannia fuss about there, which which was actually just, like, it's it's from a thing written about like the Viking invasions of Britain. It's not saying like you know we are going to go out and conquer no. the world. It's about like you know it's about resisting uh, resisting oppression. Um, but no, um, but that on that kind of stuff, or like tearing down statues of Winston Churchill, that stuff, like there is absolutely there is absolutely a very solid majority in favour of it. Mm. People, you know, people. People get, but you know, the British public are nuanced on this stuff. They you know, they really oppose tearing down the statues of Winston Churchill, but they completely understand that like hate speech should be illegal. They understand that like people in the grand sweep of British history did bad things. That like slavery was probably a bad thing, and that you know while we did contribute to ending it, we also contributed to it, it existing and, and and spreading. You know, you know, normal normal people don't don't have this kind of like this sort of consuming passion about yes. about this. No, that's true. But similarly, you can, for example, look back upon the uh, the institution of Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital, look at the fact that, that Thomas Guy was a philanthropist uh, who did great things, who may have had some money given to him um, from what you might regard as, as strange sources and, and, and from, from businesses that perhaps he shouldn't have been doing. But it doesn't mean you have to tear down the statue either, does it? 
Yeah, I think there's, I, know, I think that, like there's all sorts of people. Like the British Museum have, have, have had had this as well. I mean, you know, um, Sir Han Sloane, who's after whom Sloane Square is named. I, I'm fairly sure. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, you know, he's one of those figures. You know, he he amassed this amazing collection, which he you know, gifted to the nation. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> you know, he his his business practices were not. Um, you know, they would not meet today's standards of CSR. As I believe, um, <laughs> no, no, I'm sure that's true. But equally, I think you're right to say that most people, generally speaking, in Britain, would just like to have a reasonably happy life. They have their kids going to school. I mean, a lot of parents, for example, are quite perturbed about what some kids are getting taught in school as well. And a lot of the reasons why universities have become so woke, I think, is because of the way that they've sort of moved further and further away from what I would call democratic thought process and more and more into this kind of single. Uh, group think where you know if you think something which nobody else thinks there's something wrong with you I, so i think uh, there, there, there were i mean like 15 years ago i had the choice of staying in academia or going out into the real world um and i chose to go out into the real world because even at that point it was just like it was all about like what what really long weird words you could use and yeah. what kind of bizarre ideas from french postmodernism you could you could incorporate into your um into your you know it, it was it was actively trying to like having discussed like speaking in a way that people normal people didn't understand mm. and what's happened to, and that has kind of spread and metastasized and like these i think american ideas from american academia there's a guy called jonathan Haidt whose books like the coddling of the american mind are, are fascinating on this just this 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 idea like you know in the university's uk report this idea that if like a remark is racist if it is perceived to be racist by the person who it's said to yeah rather than if it is intended as such and you know you, you know, obviously there are people who do feel in this society that they've been discriminated against, that they are, that they are not, they, they don't have the chances that other people have had, and that bad, you know, historically bad things have happened to their their communities. At the same time, you get into the you get into this state where you're you're sort of you're separating people out based on based on group characteristics. Mm. You're separating you you victims and and oppressors. You're separate. You know, you're saying it to look like someone like me. You know, I am a you know straight white male. I cannot, you know, who's had a, you know, pretty privileged background, but you know, like literally nothing I say can have value because it is discounted. Yes. And, this my, new, and there's a new thing abroad now, isn't there, where you can't have a view on something because you can't have had any experience of it. Therefore, you certainly shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, yes, you, you, if, if you're an author, you, you, you should not write about the experience of, uh, you know, of, of, of Irish peasants. If you are not an Irish peasant, if you're a cook, you should not cook. You, know, you, you should not be. Right. Uh, you know, Jamie Oliver should not be doing his own version of paella because it's, uh, you know, it, 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 he is he's upsetting the. <laughs> yes, I've fallen foul of the yeah, I fell foul of the paella police. I started getting tweets from Spain once because I deemed <laughs> it fit and necessary to put some chorizo in it, which apparently was against the Holy Grail of Valencia. You know, so um, it is a very odd world. But as far as the government goes, you're right to say that they have to be quite careful, I suppose, about how they deal with it all. Because one of the things I keep hearing about, you know, this green industrial revolution that Boris Johnson wants is his way of kind of trying to keep on side um, the younger generation of people who care more about that than, say, the older Tories that that, that, that really don't think much of it at all. Um, so he's apparently trying to sort of be as woke as he can be. Um, so he's kind of encouraging some of this, isn't he? I think look, ultimately Britain isn't America. Like you, know, the the Donald the Trump presidency was was built, you know, on very largely on a sort of cultural as well as an economic stance. It was a giant, you know, a giant fu to. 
the 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 establishment mm. and to and the kind of ideas we're talking about. Yeah. Um, in the UK, that, that's also you know Brexit can be can be seen in the same way. But you know we're not as we're not as far down that road, I think. Um, and and also like you know the, the Tories won the election in 2019 because they talked about get Brexit done. Yeah, they didn't sort of. You know, they didn't sort of say, you know, it is a holy crusade to do that Brexit. They were like, you know, to quite a lot of people, their message was like, look, you're as tired of this as we are. Mm. Let's just get it over with right. and go back to living our lives. And I think, um, you know, and also, you know, like you know, there is an, a, a reality that the, you know, the, the fastest growing parts of the pop- population are young people and, um, uh, you know, and, and ethnic minorities. They're, you know, the Tories are already very, very heavily underwater with those. I think, you know, the the analysis from quite a lot of the sort of pollsters I've talked to is that if the Tories become the party of the, you know, the elderly aggrieved, uh, you know, if, if the Tories become the Nigel Farage party, mm. then at that point they lose, they don't just lose those voters, they kind of lose any hope of, of getting those voters. And in sort of 10, 20 years time, they find themselves you know, in, in permanent opposition. Yeah, but Nigel Farage's appeal is not just uh, to people of a certain age, though. I mean, it's quite a lot of young people who would support a reform party right now, uh, which is one, which is one that would be against lockdown, because a lot of young people are very much against lockdown. Yes, but I, I, I'm not sure that being against lockdown is enough to lead them to make the leap over to, 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 not, to Mr Brexit. Yeah, maybe not, but it's going to be an interesting few months, I think, for Boris Johnson, particularly given uh, the way a lot of people are reacting to, to, to having said to, that they voted for getting Brexit done. They didn't actually vote for Boris Johnson. A lot of people are now quite disappointed with how he's carrying on. I mean, I think he's got, you know, he, <laughs> he's been dealt the single worst hand of any prime minister that we, we can remember. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the coronavirus is absolutely an extraordinary thing that, like, is really. I mean, he, he he himself almost almost died of it. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's quite it's it's quite it's quite the year he's had. I mean, I, that said, I, you know, I don't think that. I, I think obviously he the, the the vote um, today on um, sorry yesterday on on tears and and COVID was a sort of sign of that people arrested. But yeah. there's, but there's a weird thing here where, like the you know. Every poll I've seen shows that the public just want to lock down more and more and tighter. Like the, you know, there is a yeah. I don't know who those to... people are that they keep polling because I don't know anybody who wants to. to, to well, to well, maybe maybe they want maybe they want the country to lock down tighter, but they themselves are just going to ignore the rules. Well, I think there's a lot of that going on. But Robert, listen, we're out of time. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Robert Colville, director of the Centre for Policy Studies, Sunday Times columnist as well. Um, I said at the beginning of this show, uh, is this the beginning of the end for Boris Johnson? I still think that that might well be the case. He's going to be up. Uh, very shortly with Prime Minister's questions. Uh, he has been also, of course, appearing most recently on Plank of the Week. To find out whether he's on this week's Plank of the Week, uh, we will tell you coming up next on Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're going to be talking to Neil Oliver coming up very shortly. We'll get his take uh, on everything that's happened this morning. It's been a pretty busy morning already. Uh, News of new vaccine uh, is going to be available perhaps almost imminently. Also news, uh, which we're about to discuss with Dame Esther Ranson, founder of The Silver Line, uh, that you'll be able to visit your elderly relatives. Many of you have spoken to me uh, over the past few weeks and said you haven't been able to see your elderly relatives in a care home uh, since March. It looks as though that now has finally been changed and the government uh, is going to make it possible for you to do it. Uh, Dave Esther, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. 
Thank you, and, and good morning to you too. It's really quite uh, quite a remarkable day already. Um, reasons to be cheerful, as I was saying earlier. We had a great call from um, a lady that's been listening to us in Birmingham who's got a, a potato business, uh, a sort of baked potato business in the middle of the town, urging everyone to get out, go shopping, enjoy the weather. Um, and, of course, for people who've been waiting for so long to see their relatives uh, and to be able to hold hands with, with them, uh, this is great news, isn't it? Well, of course it is. And aren't we lucky to live in a scientific age where people can work so quickly and so effectively as against previous generations who regarded plagues as just punishments from God and there was nothing they could do until it stopped. Yes. So we are very, very lucky. Yes, indeed. I mean, as far as the, uh, the, the, the process is concerned, it looks as though before Christmas, quite a lot of the members of the elderly population will be able to get a vaccination anyway. Uh, but equally, they'll be able to see their relatives who, if they can take a, a, a test and, and, and prove themselves to be negative. That's going to change people's lives for the better so radically mm. because, you know, you've had conversations, I've had conversations with people for whom it's a constant anxiety and distress that they can't visit. People that perhaps they used to spend many, many hours every day, every week, visiting, talking to them, making them feel still part of the family, still part of the world. And uh, now it's it's going to be possible again. And mm. it, it's, it's logical, isn't it? If you test negative, um, particularly if you've tested twice negative, then you should be regarded as no threat. So I think it's logical, and I'm so glad it's happening. Yes, exactly right. And also the whole kind of, uh, I would say, environment of care homes now should become much safer as well, shouldn't it? Because if all of the uh, the people working there get vaccinated, the people living there are vaccinated as well, then you can pretty much eradicate the, the disease from that particular place. Hopefully, hopefully. That's, that's what we're all working towards. And... Um, it's going to be tough at the beginning, obviously, because people are going to have to make choices, who gets priority and so on. But I think we just have to hold back, watch the decisions being made and uh, take our turn in the queue. We're very good at queuing in this country. So um, as someone of 80, I don't know whether I count as someone of over 80, do I? Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, you certainly don't look as if you're uh, in any in any way unhealthy. So, um, I mean, I suppose you will be ahead of ahead of me in the queue anyway. Well, there you are. Well, I apologise. <laughs> I hope you don't hope you don't hold this against me. But it's it's um it's such good news, and we are hungry for good news, aren't we? And yes. it's wonderful that this is happening just before Christmas. Well, I think so. I mean, judging by the reactions of a lot of people that I've spoken to already this morning, people are, you know, they've got a bit of a spring in their step, and I think we haven't had one of those for quite a while. Yeah, and that, of course there's going to be another set of decisions. What do we do over Christmas? Do we meet the families that we've been shielded from for so long? Or um, do we take it gently, cautiously, and... Mm. and and bit by bit, um, the Queen is making these decisions, I, I imagine, as we talk. I mean, yes. not that she's a close friend of mine, but obviously she's she's going to have to decide where she spends Christmas. And I think families up and down the land are having the same decisions to make. Mm. But it's marvellous that we've got the choice. Yes, I think I heard yesterday that, that, that she and Prince Philip are staying in Windsor this year. They're not going to go to uh, Sandringham as they normally would. So I suppose that's 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 one thing for them. But I guess for every family, it's different, isn't it? Because everybody's got a different set of circumstances to, to deal with. Many of them uh, will have elderly uh, relatives who perhaps are, are less well uh, than others. And so they have to make that decision. 
Yes, and until we're absolutely sure, I mean, no one quite knows how this vaccine is going to work. I don't know whether it's going to stop you catching the illness mm. or whether it's going to stop you getting the illness seriously. Uh, you know, there is a difference there, isn't there? Yes. And, of course, everybody in the end is going to have to be vaccinated if we're going to get the much-discussed herd immunity. Which, yes. You know. Yeah, I mean, well, a doctor I just spoke to said that it's not about um, preventing you from getting it, but it is about mm. preventing you from getting it too badly. Yeah. And, of course, that's what happened with people with underlying illnesses mm. or people who were over a certain age, yes. that they would find themselves suddenly carted off to ICU. Mm. Um, we want ICU for the people who need it for other illnesses. We don't want to take up space there. So... You know, that is really good news. But yes. um, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm looking forward to a new a new normal, which is more like the old normal yeah. than the current normal. Yes, I, I know exactly what you mean. And if you had said that to me 12 months ago, I would have thought you'd yeah. gone mad. I'd be like, what the yeah. hell are you talking about? But it actually makes yeah. an, awful, an awful lot of sense. And as far as your own plans are of concern, Esther, do you know yet what you're going to be doing at Christmas? Well, with whom? Well... I certainly was going to spend quite a separated Christmas mm. um, because um, my two of my children have got very young families and everybody was a little nervous about, you know, how far that they were going to spread mm. any infection and so on. So it was going to be quite a separated Christmas. But I think I'm looking at a rather more cheerful news. Mm. We'll see. Um, of course, I don't know whether my local doctor is going to put me on a priority list or not mm. and I live with my daughter as ME is that going to be regarded as an underlying health condition mm. or not yeah you know it's very like long COVID so I think it should be but so we await the news we at shall the see well Boris Johnson is yeah. giving a press conference this afternoon at five o'clock so there may be right. some more uh, news coming out of that uh, in fact, it's from 4.30, I'm told, this morning, uh, this afternoon. So, Esther, thank you very much indeed. If I don't speak to you before, maybe we will, though. Um, have a wonderful Christmas, wh whichever way round you do it, uh, because we're now in December, so I think I can now say uh, have a Merry Christmas at this point. Dame Esther Ranson, founder of Silver Line, uh, very pleased, as many people are this morning, uh, at the news that's been coming out um, about the Pfizer vaccine and about the fact that our elderly people in care homes will now be able to see their relatives, in some cases, for the first time since March. Which has got to be great news. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it's that time of the day when we uh, look out for some homeschooling as the 12.30 news has happened. I'm not sure whether there's any coincidence that following Prime Minister's questions, we're going to be doing a study of invertebrates, uh, which are, of course, creatures with no spine. I wouldn't cause uh, you to think of any kind of connection with Downing Street uh, or indeed uh, the government of this fine country of ours. Paul Hetherington uh, is from Bug Life, though. He may have something to say about that. Paul, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you, Mike. Now, this is a fascinating area for me, this invertebrates, because when you look at the list of things that, that are invertebrates, I mean, it's massive, isn't it? It goes across uh, all versions of, of, of creatures on the land and in the sea as well. Um, you can get a sea cucumber, a sea urchin, a spider, all sorts of various insects, jellyfish, of course, as well. Uh, what, what sort of drew you to be uh, an invertebrates expert? Well, 
What you have to bear in mind is, as you were saying, that invertebrates make up roughly two thirds of the species known to mankind. Wow. And in reality, may well make up more like three quarters of the species because we're always finding new invertebrates, new insects in tropical forests and things are being found almost every single day. Mm. Um, they are absolutely fascinating, massive variety. And of course, we are dependent on them for the lives we live. We tend to not notice them, ignore them, see them as pests. But without them, certainly life as we know it would not be possible. Yeah. Be it bees for pollination or dung beetles for the very important roles that things like that play. The many myriad of roles that insects and other invertebrates play is, is just astronomic and as I say, without them, nothing else would exist. No, quite. And I mean, interestingly, I suppose when you think of, of, of a jellyfish, which clearly doesn't have any kind of internal structure at all, that seems easy enough, enough to understand. But when you think about, say, a spider, um, does that mean a spider doesn't have any kind of skeleton at all? Well, they have a more what you would call an exoskeleton. Ah. Uh, so, you know, whereas um, human beings and mammals uh, and birds have all got internal bone structures, yeah. um, most of the arthropods, which includes uh, the insects, have an external skeleton. So that's why they don't have a backbone. So they have their, if you like, their bones on the outside of their body. And that's why you will find them sometimes sort of shedding their bodies, uh, particularly as they develop from early stages. And mm. um, you will see them sort of well, and what great example is um, something like the you know the daddy long legs, um, and it's known as the leather jacket when it's in your lawn, and the leather jacket comes to the surface, and you can see the what we call the daddy long legs, the crane fly pulling itself out of the body of this you know, maggot-like creature and becoming an adult, and they have to shed one skeleton to take on another one. Mm. It's quite mind-boggling, really, isn't it? So, um, do they all do that? They all sort of metamorphize at some point or other majority of them do um, change at some point in their life. Some of them change more often than others. Uh, I mean, a lot of the things, like, so for instance, in the grasshopper cricket family, and of course, locusts are also in that family, mm. they go through a series of five or more instars, which are developmental stages. Uh, the shield bugs, uh, which are very common around, and people see them a lot and quite like them, they also go through very many developmental stages, and it makes them quite hard for people to identify, because you might be called a green shield bug, but at certain times and in certain stages you might be brown and you might not look particularly like a shield bug. Mm. And as far as what's in the sea is concerned, I mean, I guess most fish have a skeleton because we know that from eating them. Um, but most of the other things like octopus, squid, um, sea snails, that kind of thing, they're, they're all invertebrates, aren't they? That's correct. Yes, they're all invertebrates. So you basically got you know, plant matter in the, in the, in the sea, such as seaweed, etc. You've got invertebrates, you've got fish, and then you've got a few mammals, such as dolphins and whales. Right. And what about things like sponges? Because um, I'm quite fascinated by sponges because they're actually living organisms. Um, I've always been kind of slightly puzzled as to how they, how they form and where they come from. Well, it's, they are just literally a, another living creature and mm. they've evolved and developed in that way. Um, and, you know, it is an optimal system for them to carry out filtration in water, get their nutrients out of it. Right. Um, but are they sort yeah. of born? I mean, I know this might sound really stupid, but I mean, where, how does, where does a sponge actually come from? Does it grow? Well, um, they will, they release... 
I'm trying to think what words we're allowed to use on air. Um, <laughs> um, they, they, they re release reproductive uh, okay. fluids right. into into the water system. I see. Um, and then these will form new little mini sponges, which okay. will then settle on the seafloor mm. and then start to develop and grow. Oh, excellent. Okay. Because I never really, I, 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 I always just wondered about how, how that came about. And as far as your, your uh, words earlier about discovering new sort of species of, of invertebrates, I mean, when we discover things like that, is it because they've always been there or are they constantly evolving into new creatures? It's primarily they've always been there. It's just you know we haven't explored every nook and cranny of the planet mm. we haven't explored particularly the deep troughs of the sea but also a, a lot of these tropical rainforest areas you know have been very little touched upon by people and they are always finding new creatures they all yeah, they find new amphibians as well so it's not just mm. really really small creatures i think there was a new mouse was found quite recently oh, really excellent and have you got a favorite invertebrate paul um, I think, certainly from a UK perspective, I, I just love the the stag beetle. I, I just think it's such a majestic creature. Yes. They they are beautiful. I mean, strange thing about them is in that that wonderful adult form with those great big antlers, yeah. they only live for about two weeks. Really, and and that's because they can't eat because what we think of as their antlers are actually the mandibles. Mm. Uh, mandibles are the insect equivalent of teeth, if you like. Right. And they've grown to make these big antlers that they use to sort of jockey for position to, to, to be with a female. But the result of that is they can't chew anything. Ah. So they can't eat. They can drink because they have got a mouth. So they can drink water and sometimes they'll find a sap run on a tree and a bit like we get maple syrup, they can get sugars from that. So do, they, that is... so do they die of malnutrition then, perhaps? Exactly, yeah, because you know, they can get virtually no nutrients into Blimey. their bodies. And, that's, but can they, and they can mate during that period, presumably? That's their sole purpose, really, for being in the adult form is for mating. They'll spend seven years in larval stages, eating away inside rotten bits of tree stump and right. so forth, before spending two wonderful weeks running around <laughs> with their antlers two mating. glorious weeks of intense pleasure. Great. Sounds brilliant. Paul, fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Fascinating, isn't it? Paul Hetherington there uh, for A Bug Life, talking about invertebrates, which are remarkable. You know, this is why we do homeschooling, because you learn something every single day. I've learned about how sponges reproduce, which I didn't know, uh, and stag beetles can't eat because their antlers are too big. Amazing, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.